Again, we appreciate very much everybody that's been here this morning. We do ask continued interest uh, in your prayers as we stand before you. Uh, we'll turn once again to the book of First Samuel, uh, chapter 18. I reckon be a good place to start or, or a good marker to make. Uh, we want to continue uh, our thoughts on the conflict between uh, David and Saul that we started last week. Uh, this week, uh, if we have a focus or maybe if we had a title, this week we focus more on Saul's abuse of power and how in his abuse of power we see his abuse of those that are around him. Um, we saw briefly last week um, that really Saul's kingship as a whole was a disaster. And, so, and Saul being king was really prophesied to be a disaster from the start. Uh, Samuel the prophet told Israel that if you want a king to judge you like all the other nations, God will give you that king. You don't need it. God's already your king. You don't need any man among you to, to sit on a throne. But if that's what you want, he'll give you one. And by the way, the one that he gives you, you're not going to like. You're not going to like anything about him. You're not going to like anything he does. Everything that he does is really going to do, be done to serve himself. And that history of self-servants in uh, positions of high political power has not changed since Samuel wrote those letters. Uh, and what's interesting, though, is when Israel heard how bad the king was going to be, they said, that's all right, give him to us anyways. People aren't any different nowadays. They're really not. David was sort of an innocent bystander, really, in a lot of this. Um, even though David, uh, which we may look at in a little bit, we'll kind of point out something, David kind of picked up a bad habit from Saul uh, that's brought forth years after this. But really in the midst of this, uh, David's kind of an innocent bystander in all of this. When you begin reading in uh, chapter 18, it says here, and the women answered, this is verse 7, the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands and what more can he have but kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. So from this point on, uh, you see fear and you see anger and you see envy, you see jealousy, uh, you see hatred out of King Saul towards little David. None of this is David's fault. Now, <clears throat> there have been times where I have suffered in life and it's been my fault. There, my daddy whipped me a few times and it was my fault. I deserve to be whipped. But there have been times in life where you have suffered at the hands of others and as far as you know, you look at it, you can say, I didn't have anything to do with this. That's possible in your life. That is the situation in David's life at this point. And the reason that you have to point this out is when you deal with the issue of abuse in somebody's life, it is oftentimes the abuse the one who is abused, who blames themselves. They say, it's, it must have been my fault. I must have done something wrong. It must be me. And that is a tremendous weight that that person may carry years in their life, maybe till the end of their life. This is not always the case. Anytime somebody is overly aggressive in the administration of their authority, and they go to the issue of abuse, the abuser is always at fault. Regardless if they say something or regardless if they do something, when the abuser allows his emotions and his sinfulness to take over and guide what he does, rather than discipline and strength from the Lord, the abuser is the one at fault. 
Then when you read through the life of King Saul, there's another question that comes up, though. When you look at the anger and the envy of Saul that he had on David, obviously it's not David's fault. David David did nothing to make King Saul angry. It was the women who were singing praises to David. That's what ignited this whole matter. Uh, That's what ignited Saul's anger against David was that he began seeing his popularity slip through his fingers. And any time that you're in a position like Saul is where you are voted in based on popularity rather than principle, when your popularity starts to wane, people get frightened and scared of that. Athletes, actors, musicians who become too old for their position and get cast aside by whatever machine is pushing them, oftentimes find it very difficult to adjust to normal society. Kevin Bacon, who is a very popular actor in our day, most of you, many of y'all know who he is. He had a friend of him, friend of his, make him a prosthetic mask that he could wear. So real, you couldn't tell it was fake. And as he would walk down the street, nobody would notice him. Nobody would recognize him. When he went to a restaurant, he didn't, oh, come to the front of the line, stand in here, have the best seat. No, he was stuck in the back with the rest of us peasants. And he didn't like it. I thought, well, welcome to my life. There's a lot of people, as soon as they are removed from the spotlight, they have a very hard time adjusting to normal life. question comes to mind is, as you look at this, oftentimes those who are in these high positions and in these high places, I wonder if they are abusive of others, striking fear into the hearts of others, motivating people by fear, ultimately because they are fearful themselves, ultimately because they are in a place of insecurity themselves. It was Pharaoh in Exodus who was afraid of Israel and said, lest they grow in great numbers and overtake us, let's imprison them. Uh, it was Herod in the Gospel of Matthew who was afraid that this young child, Jesus, that was born king of the Jews would one day rise up and overthrow his kingdom. So he said, let us kill all the children two years old and under. I don't think it's any different today. I think political leaders and politicians and even preachers, even preachers can be in a position where they have a, a hold on not only a particular area, but a group of churches. And they're so afraid that somebody's going to do something they disapprove of. And they threaten them, you know, with disfellowship and things like that. Insecurity is something that runs deep in a lot of people. And it's probably the reason that King Saul had many of the problems that he had. David did nothing to provoke this. This was King Saul's inappropriate reaction to the praise of the world. And, you know, we, we have to be careful sometime when we deal with the praise of the world around us. Uh, I, I've seen many people walk away from the church and walk away from the faith uh, to other religious groups because maybe they have a gift to sing or something. And you find out that they're not coming back to the old Baptist church because there's really no place here for fancy solo singers. We all just sort of sing together. And you comes to find out that it's it's really hard to sing praises when you end up singing four praises. It's really hard to just sing praise when you when you end up singing four praises somewhere down the street. In uh, in this particular situation that we're dealing with, 
I realize that what Saul did is inappropriate. The way that he treated David was inappropriate. But then the question, though, comes to mind. Saul has people under him. He has armies under him. He has uh, lieutenants under him, or he has people that see to his needs under him. And when he passes a command, they just kind of carry it out. And so in this, I'm not so sure which is worse. Saul's abuse of his power or those around him who let him abuse his power. Because there's a decree that comes out in chapter 19 of verse 1 that Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now, I realize the Bible doesn't tell us everything that happens uh, between David and Saul or in anybody's life. But I believe the Bible tells us enough that we should draw reasonable conclusions from this. This last chapter, there's nothing in this chapter that gives good reason for King Saul to want to destroy David. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you go back and you read in chapter 18, David has not done what was right, or David has not done what was asked of him. David did above and beyond what was asked of him. So for those of you in here who maybe have dealt in the past with an abusive relationship with somebody, that abuser does not have to define your life. The, the abuse that you suffered in the past under the hand of some mortal, sinful man, does not need to be what defines your life. Uh, let me just jump ahead while everybody's looking at me and paying attention and still awake. Let's just jump ahead to the end of the book. At the end of the book, 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, at this time in David's life, David has separated himself or tried to separate himself to the best of his ability from Saul, his abuser. And that may be your only uh, recourse sometimes in life is to separate yourself from those who are hateful, hurtful, and harmful to you. David attempted to separate himself from King Saul, and King Saul in his foolishness continued to pursue. But you find in chapter 30, David has separated himself from King Saul for a while. Uh, David, by this time now, has a second wife, and his, his two wives are residing in a particular city. While David and uh, 600 men are off pursuing the Philistines, uh, another group of Philistines kind of come in behind them and ransack the city that David and his men and their wives and their children are living in. So David goes away from home. He's fighting a battle. While he's out fighting this battle, another army comes in behind him, ransacks his city while he's not there. The men come back. They find the city burned down. They find their women, their children, all their livestock, all their goods gone. And they weep. It says in 30 and verse 4 that David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Notice verse 6, if you, if, if, if you would. And David was greatly distressed. A lot of us kind of get to this point, by the way, that uh, sometimes in life it doesn't matter what we do, no good deed goes unpunished. Heard that phrase before. You say, well, it's a negative way of looking at things, Pastor. Very possibly. But it's also a realistic way of looking at things in this life down here under the sun. That many times, no good deed goes unpunished. David's off fighting a good battle, and while he's away from home, his house burns down. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed. And the reason that we point this out is to just let you know, you're not the only one to have trouble in life, right? I know everybody in here thinks that any time you have trouble, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. 
None of y'all ever, you don't know the song? You're not going to sing it with me? The Lord knows your troubles. The Lord knows your sorrows. David knew your troubles. David knew your sorrows. And now look at verse 6. Here's another reason that David was greatly distressed. He wasn't just greatly distressed because he comes back home and the city is burned down, but it says, for the people spake of stoning him. Those men who followed him to battle are now ready to stone him to death. This is just, this is just human beings. Those who praise you on Monday will hang you on Tuesday. So if you live your life for the praise of this world, if they praise you on Monday, they'll hang you on Tuesday because they're doing that in the world right now. Comedians who were funny in the 80s, we have a generation now rising up, bringing all those things back around, saying, well, you shouldn't have said that back then. That was ugly back then. That was half racist back then. And we're going to destroy your career. So the very, the very people who made them popular are now hanging them. So that's just kind of why it's always best to just do what's right. Not to do what pleases everybody else, but do what's right. So the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, and every man for his sons and for his daughters. And here's the next thing right here. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Nobody understands. Nobody's listening. Nobody's here to help. This may seem cold and callous, but this is this is a real truth. That when you have troubles in life and you have problems in life, there's going to come a time when nobody on this planet can help you. Nobody on this planet is supposed to be your savior. Our government right now wants us to live in fear of whatever this thing is out here in this world. They want you to live in fear so they can be your Savior. Our God has said, fear not, because He is our Savior. There's going to come a time, and I, I spoke to a man here just, just recently. Uh, a man's name is Jerry, and his uh, oldest son had killed himself here back in July. And I went by where he worked to see him and spoke with him. And he says, I know people mean well when they speak to me. He says, but nobody understands what I'm going through. And I said, you're exactly right. I have no idea what you're going through. This is a road that you yourself are going to have to walk down by yourself. I cannot help you. There's not enough oil in my lamp to put oil in your lamp to let your light shine. Hence the parable of the five wise and the five foolish. There's nothing I can give that person to help him. This is a road he has to walk down by himself, but by himself, hand in hand with God. Nothing I can do for him. I can help people in this life try to come to an understanding of certain things I might could have talked to David and helped him come to an understanding of an abusive relationship in his life. But the reality is, is that there may come a time when nobody on this planet listens, knows, or cares. But David himself said, when I looked on my right hand, there was none that stood with me. There was none that stood by me. No man took me up. He said, no man cared for my soul. He said, when all men forsook me, the Lord took me. And you're going to find that that will be the greatest treasure and comfort that you've ever had in life. Not your friends, not your family, not even your church. Is that when you come to one of the darkest, deepest, distressing times in your life, that you have a close relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty. Here we have King Saul. Let's turn back to now chapter 18. And let's just kind of pick up some things here. Because I, I kind of get the feeling that uh, when, when the Bible tells us in chapter 30, verse 6, that David encouraged himself in the Lord, I don't know, maybe I kind of see more of a pattern of that throughout this chapter or throughout this story than I should see. Um, 
it's obvious that when David slays the Philistine uh, in chapter 17, Saul's happy about this. Saul kind of gets happy about this because everybody's going to reward Saul. Look at the man you chose to fight our battle. Yay, Saul's the greatest. But that's not what happens. Saul chooses this man to fight the battle and says, wow, David's the greatest. And then it creates this friction and this problem. So we find here uh, in chapter 18 and verse 17 that Saul uh, said to David, this is chapter 18 and verse 17, Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife, only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul had said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Now, Saul had kind of said that probably to himself, but Samuel's writing this. The Holy Spirit has the ability to tell the prophet Samuel everything Saul's thinking. But it also tells us that there are times when you interact with people around you, you think they're doing you a favor. But because of human depravity, be careful. Saul wanted David to come and fight his battles for him. Because he said, well, maybe I shouldn't hurt him. Maybe I shouldn't kill him. I'll just send him out there to battle and I'll let the Philistines deal with him. And he didn't realize that while he was trying to run David into the hand of the Philistines, David was already in the hand of God. He goes on to say, In uh, verse 19, but it came to pass at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholiite, to wife. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David and told Saul. And the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. We, we see this pattern here. And so you kind of wonder, did David ever know about this? Did David see about this? Was this ever given to David? Um if you want to marry my daughter, though, I need a dowry from you. That's, like, that's here in the next couple of verses. And I don't want any money. Don't, don't pay me for her. Here's what I want. I want a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Boy, this is a mess right here. And, and David goes out and doesn't bring in a hundred foreskins. David goes out and brings in two hundred. David goes out and does above and beyond what he was asked to do. Now, can you not see throughout all this passage that Saul has set David up for failure, right? You see that. Only a fool would take somebody and set them up for failure. Because it says here that Saul, this is verse 25, when Saul asked for these hundred foreskins, it said Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul sends David to war, hoping he will die in the battle. And when I said that David kind of picked something up from Saul, you remember what David did in 2 Samuel 11 when Bathsheba found out that she was expecting his child? She was married to Uriah the Hittite. He calls for Uriah to come home, hoping he'll go in and celebrate with his wife. And he does not. He's so faithful to David and to his army. He sleeps on the steps of the palace. And through the process, David realizes he can't get this man to do what he wants him to do. So he writes a letter, gives it to Uriah. Uriah takes it to Joab, who's the head of the captain of the battle. And really the letter says, put Uriah in the front of the battle. And when it gets the hottest, pull back and let him die. Now Joab... He has no reason to, to know why David has done this. He just does what he's told. I wonder, I wonder if Joab later regretted what he had done. But we see a little bit of Saul kind of rubbing off on David at this point. Have you ever, have you ever considered... Um, Have you ever considered just the subject of abuse itself? Which is, which is more dangerous? Physical abuse or verbal abuse? 
We know that Saul had in his heart to physically abuse David. It's, it's written all throughout this book. Chapter 18, verse 17 that we started from a while ago. Saul wanted David to fall into the hand of the Philistines. Everything that's laid out here in chapter 18 is that way. Chapter 19, verse 1, he had sent out this decree that David, uh, to all his servants, that they should kill David. Now, Jonathan stands up and he says, why should this thing be done? David has been a great man for you. David has done honorable things for you. David risked his own life and slew the giant for you. And so then in this conversation, um, verse 6 of chapter uh, 19, that it said that Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. <laughs> now, keep in mind, I feel for Jonathan. Jonathan is stuck between. He's in between Saul, Saul his dad, and David, his good, very, very best friend. He's stuck in the middle of this. I hate being stuck in the middle of conversations. It constantly happens at home, and sometimes it happens at church. When I'm counseling with somebody, I get your side, but I never get their side at the same time. Really, if you want some counseling from me, here's number one. Do you have a problem, yes or no? Yes. What does the Bible say about your problem? Does the Bible address your problem, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Are you going to do what the Bible says for you to do about your problem, yes or no? No. Stop bothering me. Did I have said that? Listen. If you have a problem and you know you have a problem and the Bible addresses your problem, all the counseling that I can give you, that any counselor in this world can give you, doesn't mean anything if you're not going to take the remedy that we give you. You got a broken arm? Yes. You go into the doctor? Yes. He's got to put three screws in it and put it in the cast. I ain't got time for that then you're going to wind up with a broke arm the rest of your life. Or it's going to heal improperly. See where we're going with this? Jonathan is stuck in the middle of this issue. And his father swears to him, David shall not die. And that's the last word that Jonathan gets from his father at this point until you get to chapter 20 and verse 2. David warns Jonathan, he says, Thy father... Thy father's hand is against me, and there's but a step between me and death. And David knows this because of what happened in the latter half of chapter 19, that Saul was the evil spirit of God, came from uh, God again and plagued Saul, bothered him, irritated him, and David played before him. We discussed this a little bit last week. And Saul takes a javelin in his hand and threw it at David, would have pierced him through, but David got out of the way. He stuck the javelin in the wall, and David left. David is aware that King Saul is against him. This is what he has seen. This is what he has experienced. Jonathan has not seen this. You get, you get the point. You get the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Disadvantage that Jonathan is in in the midst of this. Jonathan needs to see for himself how bad King Saul is. And Jonathan gets that chance as well. Jonathan gets another chance to stand before his father and ask him, what's so wrong with David? And Saul's anger is kindled against him. And he says, I see that, that thou hast chosen uh, the friendship of David to thy own harm and to thine own hurt and to the shame of thy mother's nakedness. And he says, as long as David lives, thy kingdom shall never be established. And Jonathan's like, well, what has he done? And at that point, Saul takes a javelin and tries to kill his own son. And if that is not some sort of schizophrenic, paranoid, delusional, uh, brain foul, I don't know what that is. You want your son to, to live so he can be king, but now you're ready to kill him because your enemies are not his enemies. Well, don't y'all y'all ever see that in church? Y'all ever see two preachers fighting? 
and one preacher says, I'm not going to have anything to do with the preacher down the street. And you're like, why? What's wrong with him? Well, if you're going to be friends with him, you can't be friends with me either. We'll disfellowship you. Y'all ever seen any of that? Such crazy, childish things. It's childish to happen in church, isn't it? Friends, it's childish to happen at all. So as you look and as you read 18, 19, um, Saul, Saul is so enraged to kill David that he even comes to chapter 20 and tells his men, go down to David's house and get him and bring him to the palace so I can kill him. And as they go down there, Michael, his wife, comes out and says, David's sick in the bed. He can't come out right now. And the men go back to Saul, and she turns to him and says, if you don't run for your life now, tomorrow you're going to be dead. Thanks, wife, for the warning. And she lets him down out of the window by a basket, and he runs off. And they go back to King Saul, and they say, David's sick in the bed, and he can't come here. And they say, then bring him in the bed. And they go down, and they find out, They've all been snookered and hoodwinked. And Saul is now mad at Michael. And he says to her, you know, why have you allowed my enemy to escape? Don't you realize that my enemies should also be your enemies? But wait a minute, uh, Saul, uh, question, question. Yes, Hannah. Uh, she told you she loved him to begin with, right? You remember that part? She told King Saul she loved him dearly. And he thought, oh good, this will be a snare to him. <laughs> yeah, a loving woman be a snare to a husband. Oh, God forbid. He hoped that somewhere along the line her mind might change and that his enemies would become her enemies. But now let's ask this question. Let's answer this question maybe. Which is more harmful, physical abuse or verbal abuse. If I punch you, you'll bruise. You bruise very quickly. If I cut you, you bleed. If I shoot you, you die. Those are some pretty immediate results, are they not? But if I yell at you and curse you, and speak words of discouragement. Those are wounds that may not manifest themselves for years to come. See, this is one of the reasons that Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death is in the power of the tongue. And they that love to speak hateful words shall eat the fruit thereof. Life is in the power of the tongue. And they that love to speak loving kind words shall eat the fruit thereof. It's an interesting thing that as even James writes in his book in James chapter 3, that behold what a little member the tongue is, and yet it is set on the whole course of hell and on the fire of iniquity, and what a great damaging member of the body the tongue is. In our court system, it's very easy very easy to point out the effects of physical abuse. Wounds, bruises, and broken bones. Very difficult to prove verbal abuse. Very difficult to prove how what somebody has said to you has been hurtful to you. And these are things that plague people for years to come sometimes. We should all be careful about the words that come out of our mouth. 
I think it'd be more hurtful to be verbally abusive than it would to be physically abusive. Simply from the fact that I cannot show you how someone said something and it hurt me. And most people kind of look at you like you're crazy. There was a saying that we used to have when I was a kid, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was obviously said by somebody who hadn't had conversations with human beings. Words can be very hurtful. This is, this is why Paul says in the book of Ephesians, give no place to the devil. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Deal with your wrath appropriately, immediately. Because if you're not careful, the words that you say can destroy an entire city in a moment's notice. As they said in the past, loose lips sink ships. It's done it in the world. It's done it in our churches. It's done it in our families. And it did it to King Saul as well. King Saul spent the remainder of his days pursuing and chasing after David to no profit, really. He should have spent the remainder of his days guiding the kingdom, ruling the kingdom as best he could. But when you look at this situation, you realize there's not really anybody worthy to rule another human being. None of us are worthy to rule another human being. There's sin in all of us. There are things wrong in every person among us. And because of that, there's nobody worthy to rule another human being. And yet, they constantly attempt to rule, and people constantly attempt to be ruled, and it all really comes to no avail. If it wasn't for David's confidence in the Lord. And then I do wonder secondarily David's relationship with Jonathan. I wonder how this situation might would have turned out. I don't have any right to tell you how it would have. I just wonder David encouraged himself in the Lord at the last half of the book. But David and Jonathan had a remarkable relationship with each other. And Jonathan had the ability to see through the fear and the suspicion and the ridiculousness of Saul's attitude and activity and continued to have a reasonable and loving friendship with David. Um, there are there are folks in the world who are loners. They really don't have anything to do with other people. I've worked with a, with a few people like this, and I think y'all have too. And I have to ask myself, how did you get to be this position? How did you get to be in the position where you're really kind of a loner and you don't have anything to do with anybody else. Is it because someone in the past so hurt you that you refuse to try to be loved again? I think that's reasonable. And I think that's right in a lot of people. They have been so hurt in the past that they put up a wall that before anybody else has the opportunity to hurt them, they're going to hurt somebody else. Ultimately, they hurt themselves. The Bible reminds us in the book of Proverbs that he that hath friends must shew himself friendly. And there is one that sticketh closer than a brother. 
one of the reasons that we try and encourage people uh, when we hear that there's a meeting at a particular church in a particular area uh, around here, one of the reasons that we try and encourage y'all to go and attend other meetings is because if you want people to be your friend, you also got to be a friend yourself. That that makes sense. Oh, that's uh, that, wait a minute, preacher. We weren't expecting you to talk about stuff like that. That's why we encourage that. We our sister churches in this area need to strengthen each other. We need to show each other that we're still here and that we care, because there are a lot of churches in their areas. They're the only one within a hundred miles. We have a great benefit here. We have a great blessing here that I'm not sure that we really know that we have sometimes. But these people that are loners, we often call them introverts as well. I know some people who are severe introverts, and they'd rather stay at home with a good book than be out with some crazy friends. I got you on that. Well, not everybody's like that. There are some people that need companionship from flesh and blood, and not just the companionship that you invent when you read, you know, The Great Gatsby or Little Women or Dr. Seuss, things like that. Uh, we all need, whether we realize it or not, friends. We need somebody in life to be a companion to us and a companion with us. David finds that in Jonathan. It says that their souls were knit together and that Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan as his own soul. In our world nowadays where everything is hypersexualized and everything has got to be, you know, some sort of inordinate affection, it's hard to believe that two people can be such good friends like this and be nothing more than a friendship. But here it's laid out. It's laid out for us that they had a deep, love and care and concern for each other. They were great friends. They were good friends. And so then someone, you know, comes up with the idea, well, why do y'all all need all these friends? Did you ever notice that God said in the beginning, it's not good for man to be alone? He himself recognized that when he created man, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. So he created for him a helpmeet. He created for him someone that wasn't a dog. And I know this breaks a lot of people's hearts to find out, well, apparently a dog is not man's best friend. Apparently diamonds are not a woman's best friend. A husband is supposed to be the best friend of a wife, and a wife is supposed to be the best friend of a husband. But I find so oftentimes if there's not that relationship that's functioning as it ought to, I think people then sometimes also within that relationship seek comfort somewhere else. And that tends to a lot of problems. David has Jonathan as a friend. Who's your best friend? Well, it ought to be your husband. It ought to be your wife. It's okay for husbands to have acquaintances outside of the marriage the, the marriage commitment. I like Brother Doug just, just as much as I like Jerry and Roger. Don't like you near as much as I like my wife. And they said, Amen. We're glad for that. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's necessary that even you ladies have friends in the church. Have people that you take care of and people that take care of you. We have a generation that has kind of suffered a little bit in the last few years. Um, after, after the Industrial Revolution occurred, specifically after World War II, and, and the men moved home, the Nobody moved back to the farms. Everybody stayed in the city. And so that generation that used to have a mother at home to teach and train the children or even teach and train the grandchildren 
that generation is gone because everybody's at work now. Everybody's pursuing the almighty dollar. Now, uh, granted, the devil is aware of this situation, and he has the way to yoke up the Federal Reserve down here and crank up inflation so that it's almost impossible to live off of a single income. I get you on that. I know that. But I think there's a lot of times that we live above our means sometimes, and we pursue things that we don't necessarily have to have, and it causes us to miss out on what we truly need. Companionship. One with another. You know the story. Saul's pursuit, Saul's envy, Saul's suspicion of David uh, leads him down this disastrous road. And he ends up falling on his own sword taking his own life. A thought occurred to me then as I'm looking at this. We see the activity of King Saul, how it's carried out against Jonathan and against David throughout 1 Samuel. Then we come to 2 Samuel. When you get into 2 Samuel, King David is, uh, is sort of the lead in this. And what is the biggest problem that King David has in 2 Samuel? The biggest problem that King David has is he's inconsistent. He's inconsistent in the kingdom. He's inconsistent in his family. King Saul was a double-minded man, so to speak. Uh, the Bible talks about the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So King Saul was unstable and double-minded in that he told Jonathan one thing, but he acted a different way toward, towards King David. David was an unstable or a double-minded man. And I wonder about this. David was a mighty man of war, was he not? David killed the Philistine. He cut, his, uh, cut, cut the Philistine's head off with the Philistine's own sword. He pursued the Philistines on a number of occasions, overtook them in chapter 30 where we uh, read from a while ago when David came back and found his house burned. He and those mighty men went back and pursued those that had burned their city down and destroyed them and got back everything he, everything that they lost. David was a mighty man of war. He knew what it take, he knew what it took to kill another human being. He is a small child. Saw what happened when he slung the rock into the forehead of Goliath and he sunk down and fell to the ground and then took his sword and cut off the giant's head. He knew what it took to hurt another human being. So it kind of makes you wonder when Absalom, within his own house, rose up against him. If David was such a mighty man, why didn't he just deal with Absalom? Why didn't he just punch him dead in the mouth? Because I think he understood what it took to hurt another human being. I think he understood what it also meant to be hurt. And while he would have done it to the Philistines and the Amalekites and everybody else that threatened his throne, found no place in himself to hurt his own child. <clears throat> Joab, on the other hand, didn't feel like David did. You go and you read about that, and Joab was like, David, he is pushing you around. He is embarrassing you. He is mocking you. And it was Joab himself who, who, who yoked up his men, and they put three spears through his heart and buried him under a pile of rocks. Talking about Absalom. It makes me wonder if the conflict between him and Saul had a little bit to do with that. It makes me wonder with the conflict of those around him it made him somewhat of a softer person. I wonder about that. Because I know, I, I know what it's like to hurt another human being. I've never killed anybody. But I went to public school, and I had my fights in the playground. I had my fights in the neighborhood. I know what it's like to see another man hurt, another man cry, another person have sorrow. 
And if somebody comes up with the attitude of, well, I went through it and I was all right, what does it matter how they hurt? You came through it, but you're not all right. If you come through something and then you look at other people going through the same thing and you say, get over it, I got over it too, you didn't get over it. If you look at somebody going through trouble and you don't have a heart to step in and say, this is not going to work out well for you. You didn't learn your lesson and you didn't come out of it near as well as you think you did. We need to have a heart of compassion for folks around us. If we actually did come out of something, if there was pain and there was heartache in your life, the last thing that you need to develop is the stoic attitude of the generation of the 30s and the 40s. I realize that our grandparents before us did without a lot of things in life. They did without shoes on their feet. Sometimes they did without clothes on their back. And they did without food on their table. And they trudged through. They made it through and they came out on the other side. I think also in the process they did without love in their hearts. And by that I mean they did without being able to demonstrate and show love to those that are around them. Because they'll look at you now and say, you've got troubles? Buck up. Everybody has troubles. So what? That's not the appropriate response to someone who's in trouble. The appropriate response is, how can we pray for you? How can the Lord help you? David and Saul had a lot of problems. Saul brought a lot of it on himself. It negatively affected David for years to come. If you're in the midst right now of even raising small children, what you say to them and what you do to them, you may not see the effects right now. You may not see those effects for years to come. It's best right now to let thy words be soft, thy words be kind, and thy love be long and true. Thank you for your good attention this morning.